Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that the following podcast was produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. You can visit the SLSA online at southernlaborstudies.org, and you can follow the SLSA on Twitter at Southern Labor SA. I hope you enjoy the following interview. Welcome to Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm your host, Beth English, and we're speaking today with Jay Driscoll, Assistant Professor of History at Hood College and author of the new book, Schooling Jim Crow, The Fight for Atlanta's Booker T. Washington High School and the Roots of Black Protest Politics, published by the University of Virginia Press. Okay, Jay Driscoll. Well, welcome to the Southern Labor Studies Association podcast. It's great to have you here talking about your book, Schooling Jim Crow, The Fight for Atlanta's Booker T. Washington High School and the Roots of Black Protest Politics. So can you set the stage for us a little bit before we launch into our discussion about um, the, the main themes of the book and describe Atlanta at the turn of the last century from the late 19th to the early 20th century? What was happening there? Sure. Um, so, yeah, the book takes place in Atlanta, um, and it covers about 30 years of Atlanta's history, from 1890 to about 1920 or so. Uh, over that time, Atlanta basically triples in size to about 200,000 people by the time you get to 1920. Uh, part of the reason it did that is it was the hub for about 10 major railroads. And along those railroads, thousands and thousands and thousands of people pour into the city. Uh, and what this does is, well, first of all, it creates this dynamic in which the city is growing population-wise faster than the city's infrastructure can grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is generally true for almost every city at this particular time. So it creates this demand for a broad array of city services and city goods Um Access to these becomes the sort of like hallmark of being, you know, having made it in a modern mm-hmm. city. And mm-hmm. this includes things like, you know, public schools, access to swimming pools, libraries, uh, mundane things like sidewalks. You know, sidewalks kind of get invented in the late 19th and early 20th century and installed in cities. Um, and only the really nice neighborhoods had them at first. Um, these all become sort of sites of contestation between, you know, the rich and the poor, between the, you know, respectable working class and their unrespectable neighbors, and most importantly for Atlanta, between uh, African-Americans who have moved into the city and, of course, white Americans who live there. Okay, so can you discuss broadly then, within this context, Southern segregation, um, Jim Crow, segregated norms, and how this comes to shape a particular kind of urban development in Atlanta? Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, one of the key terms in my book uh, um, is this idea of civic rights. And as you have the development 
of all of these new um, urban amenities, uh, they become a new way for African-Americans to assert equality with white Americans, particularly uh, white Atlantans, I say. Um, so we're used to understanding civil rights, you know, the right to vote, the right to a, a trial by jury, um, these sorts of things, which are sort of long-standing, you know, hoary, you know, notions of civil rights history. At the beginning of the 20th century, you, it's really evident that there are civic rights as well. And these are access to those wonderful benefits of being in a modern city. And each time a streetcar goes by um, and you have, you know, white men and white women and black men and black women standing cheek by jowl in some of these streetcars because they were really small at first, they're able to assert an equality of access to that particular public good. Same thing goes for sidewalks. Um, there's a reason why a lot of the race riots in the late 19th and early 20th century start when somebody bumps somebody else on the sidewalk because it becomes this space that's very hard to regulate by law mm-hmm. um, and segregate into the, you know, this is the black part of the sidewalk and this is the white part of the sidewalk. Um, eventually it gets solved by custom and violence, but... Um, in any case, this whole sort of jockeying for position for access to these new civic rights helps lay the framework for segregation laws. And these segregation laws are touted, particularly in Atlanta, when they segregate the streetcars. Oh, boy, 1902, I think it was, 1901. Um, they do it in order to preserve public order mm-hmm. and restore harmony between the races because the line is really obscure in these streetcars. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sets up this sort of, you know, segregation laws for urban progressives in Atlanta are actually understand as progressive reforms meant to create a harmonious and peaceful city when you have two races living side by side. And for these white progressives, they were pretty sure which race should be on top, but they still wanted to make sure that there was harmony there. What happens is as these cities are growing and expanding, you have all these urban boosters, people we would understand as progressives today. You know, the people who fought for the municipal ownership of utilities, mm-hmm. the people who fought to expand public schools or build public transit. And they're faced with this dilemma because they can see the ways in which African-Americans are beginning to assert this equality of access to all these new public goods, but they're very committed to expanding these public goods um, for, you know, white people. So how are they going to expand and modernize the city for white people without at the same time creating a situation in which black people now have another ground to stand on to assert their equality? And this is kind of in my my book, in the chapter one, I, I kind of talk about this as, you know, this is the progressive's dilemma, um, particularly for southern urban progressives. And again, they solve it through um, segregation. When that fails, they solve it through violence. So what you're arguing then is that there are these competing notions of progress, right? Where you have white progressives with an idea of what progress is, black progressives with an idea of what progress is. And these don't always or even often overlap. And the result of this, you argue, is the emergence of a particular kind of black political activism in Atlanta. And you discuss this in your book as initially functioning under an umbrella of the politics of respectability. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about this and tell us what the roots of the politics of respectability were and what the dynamics of it were. So 
a good way of understanding the politics of respectability. I mean, this has become a very big um, buzzword nowadays. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, wrote about it in The Atlantic, and everyone's talking about it, which is great. Um, hopefully those people buy my book. Um, <laughs> but uh, a good way of understanding the politics of respectability is to link it back to um, Booker T. Washington and his Atlanta Compromise of 1895. Uh, mm-hmm. This was a speech he gives um, before the International Cotton States Exposition in Atlanta. And um, in the speech, it was widely applauded by white Southerners. Um, it was applauded by a certain segment of black Southerners and was condemned by a certain other segment of African-Americans nationally. Um, and in this speech... He basically said that African-Americans need to give up on the fight against segregation publicly, need to give up on the fight against disfranchisement and accept your place and work your way up from the bottom. Mm -hmm. Um, The famous quote that everyone quotes from this, um, besides the cast down your bucket quote, is, you know, in all things that are purely social, we can be as separate as the fingers, yet one is the hand in all things essential to mutual progress. What Washington is trying to say here is that all those social questions, which include things like interracial marriage, interracial sex, includes things like asserting your equality in a public space by being able to stand in the front of the streetcar wherever you want to in the streetcar. He's saying we need to like remain separate as races so that we all remain fingers on that same hand. Mm-hmm. What he's terrified of, and I think a lot of African-Americans are really terrified of, is that this is a moment when you know the Negro question gets raised again and again, you go through the newspapers of the late 19th century and every other editorial page has something with a new answer to the Negro question. Some of these answers are, boy, you know, tuberculosis is taking hold in all these cities where these African-Americans are living. Maybe outside of slavery, they can't survive. Maybe they'll just die out and that will be good for us. Sometimes it gets resolved through calling for, you know, violence against African-Americans who seem out of place. Sometimes explicitly race-based disfranchise and other times is deportation from the entire, you know, continental United States. And what Washington was trying to do, and this gets back to the politics of respectability, is he's trying to find some way to define citizenship, to deracialize citizenship. Um, in a way that allows some African-Americans to stake a claim at some part of American civilization. If they start at the bottom, that's fine because they can get their way up to the top. If they get defined as outcasts, um, as outside of American civilization, then it's no holds barred. It's black extermination. That's what people really like. That's the, the nightmare imagination in the back of people's heads. Um, and speaking as a historian, this is conjecture because I don't know what was in people's heads. Um, where I'm going with this is that this is where the politics of respectability come in. Booker T. Washington needs to change the question. It can't be the Negro question anymore because the answer to the Negro question is always about the Negro. He has to change it to the class question, the gender question. If you can find some way of saying, well, we'll accept exclusions. We'll accept a hierarchical, rigidly hierarchical society in which some people are left out and some people are included. But we make the terms of inclusion respectability the proper sort of class deportation, uh, you know, deportment, Mm -hmm. the proper gender deportment, then anyone who behaves properly can be part of that sort of new American polity that is not defined by race. 
So who were the leaders uh, among the black community um, in this emerging politics of respectability? Um, well, a lot of these folks were, um, you know, black businessmen were really, really important. Uh, you know, Heman Edward Perry, who was the founder of the Standard Life Insurance Company of Atlanta, was one of the richest people, went richest people, black or white, um, in Atlanta. And he developed this pretty big, you know, business organization there and used a lot of his, you know, money to sort of fund other sort of African-American initiatives. And so how did that go over with the um, powers that be in turn of the century Atlanta, meaning the white Southern progressives? Well, it, it's interesting. So um, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, uh, one of my favorite historians, uh, introduced this idea um, her 1988, 88 book, I think it was, called Righteous Discontent. It's about black Baptist women um, in the church. is great. And she introduced this idea of a bridge discourse. And a bridge discourse is this sort of language that gets shared between, you know, black elites and white elites. And on this bridge, they try to negotiate some sort of, you know, way of living together. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, is that the white elite standing on that bridge, they have no obligation to the black elite standing on that bridge. So in moments, white paternalists will feel good about themselves, you know, um, by being able to help out the black community, having a few, you know, black friends, um, doing something for the poor black orphans. But when that becomes costly, for whatever reason, uh, maybe suddenly white supremacy becomes, you know, the, the, the thing you have to adhere to to get elected. Um, maybe it becomes too costly because the panic of 1893 kind of takes all the money out of your cotton mm-hmm. and you need to compete with those people. Um, they can just turn their backs on these folks who have tried to build an interracial politics based on white paternalism for um, a very, very, very long time. And so white elites would sometimes kind of feel, you know, obligated, but there was nothing constraining them to dealing fairly or dealing in in good faith with these other folks at the other end of the bridge. So when you talk about the strategy of, as you call it in your book, changing the subject of moving from a discourse of race to one of respectability, you also give examples of how precarious respectability as a political strategy could be. One of the most stark examples of this is the buildup to and fall out from the 1906 Atlanta race riot. Would you tell us a little bit more about the race riot and um, especially its impacts on the politics of respectability? The, the riot, when I, was, when I had just mentioned about how there are these moments in which, you know, years of, you know, arduous interracial negotiations can be thrown out the window in a heartbeat, um, the gubernatorial race that leads up to the 1906 Atlanta race riot is one of these issues. Uh, that race pitted um, a progressive, Hoke Smith, um, against someone who is kind of an, an, you know, an old line, more conservative Democrat named Clark Howell. Um, and both of these had formerly been understood as, quote unquote, friends of the Negro, you know, kind of paternalistic people whom you can rely on for donations for your church um, or et cetera, et cetera. And in the midst of this campaign, the um, people who were backing Hoke Smith, they ginned up a fake rape scare 
uh, on the front page of the Atlanta Journal, which is the biggest offender, um, and the Georgian, which is the other biggest offender, uh, there would be, you know, in, you know, 36 point font, these enormous headlines, I guess maybe bigger font than that, um, that would just talk about somebody being raped somewhere by a black brute. Mm -hmm. And it happened every single day for weeks and weeks and weeks. And by the time, you know, Hoax Smith, this works. I mean, so many people be- wanted to believe that, you know, yes, African-American men who in Atlanta tended to be itinerant laborers, tended to be less pinned down, tended to be poorer, um, are also sort of out of control. And they're going to come after our white women. And so we must portray ourselves as the noble, you know, chivalrous knight in shining armor and defend our virtuous maidens against these black beasts. Um, And that worked remarkably well in ginning up a racist vote for Hoax Smith. Um, And what happened is that all this interracial alliance building gets gets chucked out the window. You know, one of those black elites who is a... um, uh, who's a central figure in schooling Jim Crow uh, is a guy named Ben Davis Sr. And he was um, a kind of a major player in the Georgia Republican Party. He uh, ran the um, Atlanta Independent, which is like one of the more important black newspapers in the South at this time. And, you know, he had had cordial relationships with, you know, white politicians. And this, you know, campaign alarmed him to no end. Um, and he understood the storm that was about to come. And he kept talking about, you know, he kept putting these editorials in the Atlanta Independent about how black men needed to find a way of defending their black women and keeping them in the home. He wanted to make sure that black families looked respectable, meaning there was a black male wage earner and a female dependent, and the female dependent did not go out and work for wages and lived in this sort of nice Victorian middle-class household that was completely unacceptable, Um, not unacceptable, um, completely impossible for most black Atlantans live because black men had no work available to them and African-American women were the ones who had the steady jobs. They tended to work as domestics for really low pay, but you could always get job work as a domestic. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- he couldn't even have this happen. Um, and as tensions begin to rise um, on September 22nd, 1906, he publishes his editorial um, that calls on a curfew to be imposed on all black women in the city, making sure they're off the streets by 9.30 p.m. And he then says, and then we have to do something about these black rapists. Now, Ben Davis is an African-American leader. He says, we have to do something about these black rapists. Mm. And he volunteers to lead an interracial lynch mob to go after um, these, quote-unquote, black brutes. He promises a, quote, red-hot campaign of death and damnation to every black brute. And this is a really interesting, desperate perversion of the politics of respectability. You know, in most race riots of the early 20th century, um, it's not a fair fight. It's not an equal fight. They're basically racial pogroms in which well-armed and protected white mobs tear through black communities and they shoot at will. And what Ben Davis is trying to do here is he he really feels in his bones that this is going to come. He's trying to change the question. He's trying to make this riot not about black versus white, 
but about respectable, law-abiding, you know, restrained Victorian middle-class people against black brutes, which preserves some role for middle-class folks like him in the aftermath of this riot. Mm -hmm. The problem is it failed. (laughs) It failed completely. On September 22nd, the very same day that Ben Davis publishes that call for an interracial lynch mob to stamp out all the brutes, um, Atlanta breaks out in a three-day racial pogrom that kills about 25 African-Americans. And the people that they target in this riot are not the, the hoodlums. They're not the criminal elements. They're not the black working class. They're not the vagrants and tramps. They're the respectable black middle class who are the ones whose uprising, whose rise up the class ladder most threatens sort of like, you know, the racial categories that put white people on top and black people at the bottom. Mm-hmm. The weirdest story to come out of the Atlanta race riot, um, and this is something that um, Lugenia uh, Burns Hope, who also figures in my, in my book, and Walter White both talk about, is that um, it is the, the hoodlums, the criminal element um, in a neighborhood called Darktown, uh, they're the only ones that have a lot of guns. Um, and are willing to use them in a disciplined way to shoot at the mob that was coming to their neighborhood. And they managed to save the people of Darktown and the neighboring black neighborhoods from, you know, probably being killed uh, because, you know, here's this unrespectable black element, but who is willing to, you know, take up arms and do very unrespectable things in order to defend themselves against um, this white mob. And in their sort of diaries and letters, you know, they write about how wonderful or how thankful and grateful they should be about, you know, you know, the hoodlums of Darktown because they kind of saved us all. So how did this event then become a jumping off point for the emergence of an autonomous black politics in the city? Well, it's interesting. So in the aftermath of the riot, um, there are there's a few things that, ha- that, that, that happen to shift the development of, of black political consciousness. And I think the most important of these is the emergence of a kind of a cross-class alliance of African-American women um, that found a group called the Neighborhood Union. Uh, the Neighborhood Union is kind of loosely modeled on Hull House um, up in Chicago, one of the famous settlement houses. And its founder, one of its founders, uh, Lugenia Burns Hope, used to work at Hull House um, kind of before she moved down south to go with her husband, John Hope, who was going to become president of Morehouse and then Atlanta University later. Um, when she gets to Atlanta, uh, she is living in this neighborhood that's relatively dangerous at the time. And there's shootings and there's lots of drunk people on the streets. And she has children. And she is wondering, how am I going to raise my children here? This is, this is kind of crazy. Like, I am, you know, I am a, I'm a, I'm a middle-class progressive woman who has a mission to kind of, you know, defend the, the health and virtue of these children. And I can't do it in this neighborhood. So she goes door-to-door in that neighborhood, and she finds all of the mothers willing to pull together, and they form an organization called the Gate City Kindergarten Association um, in 1905. And uh, this group, interestingly enough, is still around and still running kindergartens, mm. which is kind of amazing. But, you know, they run these kindergartens for about three years, and their focus is on racial uplift. It's a focus on, you know, learning how to create, you know, respectable black adults 
out of, you know, about out of children that are growing up in relatively impoverished conditions. Like, they, you know, they care about the health of the children. They care about the virtue of the children. They also care about the reputation of the race. You know, um, the language they use to talk about the kind of work they do is that, you know, we need to make sure that these people who are now potential criminals do not grow up and basically disgrace the race. Um, so they do that for a while, but they realize they actually – this is not big enough. There's, there are bigger problems. Atlanta, remember, is tripling in size as all this is going on. Mm-hmm. You know, thousands of people keep flooding into the city, including a lot of young women who are seemingly unattached or they're stuck at home while their men are still stuck in the sort of the migratory you know, circuit of agricultural labor in the south at this time. And so they reach out to these women and they begin to form you know, what they call the neighborhood union where they try to sort of – they look out for the health of these women, make sure that these women don't fall into um, vice or prostitution or crime. They're very, very concerned about this. Um, and they begin to have a, a certain effect on you know black neighborhoods. They begin to morally police black neighborhoods. Uh, one of the things that they try to do is they try to drive out all the juke joints and all the taverns from particular neighborhoods because they see them as you know these these elements for introducing vice and criminality and unrespectability into black neighborhoods. They even get so good at this they have a standardized form that they fill out and send to the police department saying such and such is running a house of ill repute at this address, fill in the blank. Could you please do something? (laughs) Fill in the blank. You know, it's kind of like, it's this weird respectability machine they start running. Um, You know, and it's fun. It's, you can, you know, it sounds humorous today, but what they were doing is they were trying to position themselves between a very hostile police force who would come in and crack skulls. You know, the police in Atlanta were also the ones that collected all the debts for merchants, um, which was very insidious, and it was one of their duties. And so the neighborhood union wanted to make sure the police came to these neighborhoods only in targeted ways, and the police came to the neighborhood union first so that it actually helps defend and protect black neighborhoods from a certain amount of police violence, which is kind of an interesting you know, like thing I discovered in my, my work. One of the things they begin to realize as they're looking at the sort of virtue of these women that are coming into Atlanta is they begin to, you know, they realize that you know, the neighborhoods in which these women have to raise their children or be moral and virtuous are almost impossible to do that in. Because there are no street lights, there are no sidewalks, um, there's no running water, there's no electricity, and there are no public schools. Well, there are a few public schools, but they're very, very you know, poorly funded. They're very overcrowded. And because they're women and they have this sort of like, you know, Victorian era mission to defend the health and morality of children and the family and the home, they become focused like no other group on the exact same question that I'm focusing the whole book on is civic rights. Mm -hmm. Civil rights, very important, right? You know, all these women, they're all suffragists. They all want the right to vote. You know, they all want trial, you know, jury trial. They want, you know, due process. All that's important. But because they're one step removed from um, actual formal electoral politics in Georgia, in fact, Georgia doesn't ratify the 19th Amendment, I think, until like 1980 or something ridiculous. Um, It takes them a long time. Um, But these women are 
one step removed. And so they're very much focused on this idea about civic rights. And so they begin to survey the entire sort of like city of Atlanta tabulating, you know, in very progressive era forms. Like, so there are no sidewalks here. There's no running water. There's no plumbing. And let's do, look at the schools. In 1913, they do a survey of all of the schools in the city, all the black schools. And they discover that I think there are 6,000 some odd um, black children going to these black schools, but there's only 4,000 desks. Hmm. And it means that the same teacher has to teach a full class in the morning and then eat or maybe take a nap and then teach another full class at night. You know, these double sessions in order to incorporate all of the African-American children who were going to these public schools. And the schools, of course, had no running water. One school was located between the city dump, um, a butcher, and, you know, um, and some sort of like, oh, maybe it was like a leather tannery. I mean, just like the most unhealthy, unconducive to learning environment you could possibly imagine. And they, of course, believe in the politics of respectability. They go to all the white women in town who, you know, want to do something nice for the Negro. They go to the city council. They go to the mayor. They go to the richest people in town. And, you know, this alarms them. So they do their own study. And they realize, oh, my God, the white schools, the white schools are in as bad a shape as the black schools. We can't have this. And so what they decide to do is, like, we need to improve the white schools. How are we going to fund improving the white schools? We're going to remove eighth grade from all the black schools that exist and use the savings to, you know, build a few new schools for white students so we can relieve the overcrowding pressures. At this point, the neighborhood union, you know, having been this sort of reliable sort of, you know, mediator between the white community and the black community and an enforcer of, you know, morality on the black community has realized that that bridge they were standing had just been just blown up mm-hmm. by, you know, these people who are now more concerned about people who look like themselves. If we could back up for just one second, could you give us an example of African-Americans who were at this point engaging with their white progressive counterparts in the politics of respectability? Another really good example of one of these sort of African-American leaders who are very invested in the politics of respectability as these middle class sort of um, negotiators who you know, aren't the earlier neighborhood union um, is uh, Reverend Henry Hugh Proctor of First Congregational Church. Uh, First Congregational is a real competitor with the neighborhood union in terms of delivering social services to black Atlanta at this time, except where the neighborhood union tries to draw on um, only African-American material resources to be able to, um, to, to fund his program, uh, fund their programs. Uh, Reverend Proctor relies on the largesse and the philanthropy of Atlanta's most powerful white people, including like Asa Candler, who helped found the Coca-Cola Corporation. Um, you know, a lot of the people who were sort of behind, you know, the riots in 1906, you know, and he runs, you know, he has a gym, he has after school programs, he's got health clinics. Um, and it does, it, it, you know, it, it pays off for him personally. And those goods that he delivers to the black community are not, you know, unsubstantial. They're, they're very important for the people who took part in them. The problem is, is that, you know, doing it that way just reaffirms another sort of like layer of, you know, black subordination to white power. And also, you know, if Atlanta got in such dire straits, 
all of that stuff would just be, you know, yanked away from First Congregational because it's funded by all this white philanthropy. You, you can, if you're a labor historian, you could think about it as the difference between a company union and um, sort of an autonomous union. Um, and the company unions, you know, in this situation would be the ones that are tied by these binds of, uh, by these ties of respectability to Atlanta's white leadership. Okay, so let's continue with talking about the neighborhood union. They realized then, by 1913, black taxes had paid for 38 grammar schools, two high schools, and five night schools. All of those were only open to white students. None were open to black students. Three years later, clear, uh, clearly that the politics of Rector have now been totally broken. Three years later, the city tries this again. In 1916, to fund another expansion of the white schools, they proposed cutting the seventh grade from all of the black schools. This is the moment in which the NAACP gets formed. They get formed in order to fight the elimination of the seventh grade, and they build their work directly on top of the work done by the neighborhood union. They also inherited the neighborhood union's rejection of the politics of respectability, or at least reframing the politics of respectability as something to say, you know, we have a right to respectable existence um, rather than we need to submit to white paternalism to get that respectable um, existence. When the NAACP meets with the um, school board, you know, they push back in explicitly oppositional terms. They're no longer trying to say, hey, we could use some black schools here because if you build some black schools, we won't be producing future generations of black criminals, which will make you unsafe. They say instead, we paid taxes to have schools built and you aren't building any schools. We demand that you build some schools. We demand that you do not cut the seventh grade. And the NAACP saves the seventh grade. It's a huge, huge, huge victory because they hadn't done that before. And they're trying to figure out, well, how do we do this again? How do we create, you know, how do we go on the offense here? Because we've been on the def- defensive for such a long time. White Atlanta has progressed rapidly into the 21st, you know, 20th century. But black Atlanta, we've been relegated to these like mid-19th century ghettos with, you know, no city services whatsoever. Was Atlanta unique in this um, in this kind of politics, or was this something that was emerging, whether organically or as part of a broader movement across the urban South? I I don't know the answer to that question because um, I I haven't studied the other cities well enough to know that you know like you know. It, I read the newspaper every day for, I think, 30 years to be able to kind of dig out the pieces of the story. So I have not done that for other cities. But um, Atlanta is relatively unique um, as a southern city. Uh, It is the fastest growing city in the south during this period of time. Um, It's growing by leaps and bounds. Um, It is the intellectual capital of black America before New York um, really takes that mantle because um, you have four major black universities there. Um, and unlike a lot of cities in, in the South, there are a tremendous number of women in the workplace in Atlanta, uh, which is not true anywhere else. Uh, there's a lot of sort of uh, small-scale light manufacturing, um, a lot of service sector jobs that emerge in Atlanta, and this draws lots and lots and lots of women, both black and white, into the workforce, which is just not true in other places. 
And so that sort of refocusing of black political energy on the question of civic rights, um, which undermines this politics of respectability amazingly, you know, um, at, at least in Atlanta, I think it has a harder time occurring any other place in the South. Um, I think it does occur in the North, uh, but that happens kind of after the Great Migration, after World War One, and World War One itself has a has a uh, tremendous impact on the gender discourses that feed into the politics of respectability. But you know, the two really good books on that are uh, Victoria Wolcott's Remaking Respectability, um, which is a really really great book. Um, talks about the same similar story in Detroit between the wars. Um, and Devarian Baldwin's Chicago's New Negroes, which talks about Chicago pretty much between the wars during the Great Migration and afterwards. You open your book with an interesting anecdote taken from the Atlanta Independent, a leading black newspaper during the Progressive Era, in which a white man is riding in a coach driven by a black man who is very skillful with his whip. He can pick a fly off of a rose, the story goes. And as the trip proceeds, the white passenger challenges the black driver to pick a fly off of this and to pick a fly off of that, with each challenge getting successively more difficult. The driver skillfully does this until the driver is challenged to pick a hornet off a nest. And he says, no, he won't because he says the hornets are organized. And this struck me as an interesting way to start out the book as you explore the story and dynamics of a particular kind of organizing. But I'm wondering if we could perhaps bring the discussion forward to current events. Are there any lessons that we can take away from this anecdote and the broader story about progressive era Atlanta for today? Yeah, sure. Um, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this, actually. Um, so but to answer the question, I actually need to kind of mentioned the most important thing that happens in the book, which I think I have not mentioned yet, um, is that at the end of all of this, right, when the politics of respectability has collapsed or has shifted, um, what happens is that the um, NAACP in Atlanta, they organize black Atlantans to pay their poll taxes. Um, some folks are paying their poll taxes, you know, 30 years in back poll taxes, maybe maybe 20 years in back poll taxes, which is a lot of poll taxes. You know, that's, that's a, it's a month's salary for somebody. Um, in order to vote in three different municipal funding referenda, um, and, you know, each of these referenda is supposed to fund, you know, a new waterworks, uh, expanding the fire department, and very importantly, building more schools. And the NAACP basically gets each of these times, gets the black electorate in Atlanta to vote down the municipal funding referenda. Um, the first time they do it and the city doesn't understand, and they're like, well, you know, we'll just redo the vote because, it, you know, there's some people, they've left town, they're not back from World War I yet, and they're mechanics, and they're on the road. Let's run it again. And so they run it again, and they lose the vote again. Um, and this time they realize a lot of black people have voted against it. And they said, oh, no, there must be some designing white conservatives that are saying, you know, don't vote for this. It's not in your self-interest, which then forces the NAACP to come out with a basically a manifesto saying, no, we know exactly what we're doing. Um, we demand as taxpayers and patriotic Americans, this is right in the aftermath of World War I, that um, we should get something for our tax dollars. We demand that you build a black high school. We demand that you build black grammar schools um, because these are our these are our civic rights. Um, and eventually they 
the, the city attorney. They tr- try to get all the black votes thrown out so they can just pass it anyway, but that's legally too much trouble. So they run the vote a third time. And um, the third time happens in April of 1919, and it goes down decisively to defeats. Um, and that's the context in which um, uh, Jackson McHenry, who was who said the quote about the with the colored man in the buggy and whipping the flies off the roses. That's um, that's the quote. That's, it kind of came immediately in the aftermath of that last bond election. And what he was trying to say here is that you know. All, the entire black middle class of Atlanta, which was sizable enough to send all of its kids to Atlanta University for high school or send all of its kids out of the state for high school and have them be educated somewhere else, they actually decided we're going to give up on that politics of respectability. We're going to give up on listening to what the white man who owns the buggy is telling us to do. And we're going to take the side of the flies and the hornets um, because we know what side we're on. So when um, Captain Jackson and Henry is saying that, you know, no, sir, they're organized, he's saying that, no, I'm on their side. That's what it means to be organized. And we've seen, you know, these, you know, I'm gonna, I'll call them riots. I, I don't have anything against riots. You know, I'm a historian of the working class. Um, you know, we have these sort of riots and uprisings, you know, in Ferguson and in Baltimore and in Madison and all these other places. We keep hearing this quote from Martin Luther King, you know, that riots are the language of the unheard, you know, and it gets taken out of context quite a bit because King wasn't, he's not approving of riots at all, you know. He's a very respectable man. He stayed respectable, you know, his entire life, you know, as he was very much involved in this respectability politics, but he, of course, twisted it in a way, shifted it, I should say, um, to make it more of a weapon than it was, uh, it was previously. Um, but he's not defending riots so much as he's saying that it's really important to listen to those folks on the streets, the folks who did not get the, you know, go to the right high school and graduate and go to college and wind up in a suit on TV and can speak the proper words to explain what's going on. Sometimes they have to go out on the street and they need to chant, you know, the chant that we heard in uh, the streets of D.C. when, um, you know, we were protesting Eric Garner's murder um, in December. You know, the, the words that say, hey, if we can't breathe, you can't breathe. What Folks who trot out respectability as a way of saying, well, we can't listen to those people because they're rioters and they're hoodlums and they're whatever. Um, we basically need to say, no, no, no. Riots are the language of the unheard. We need to hear those people. We need to give them equal political standing to all of those folks you know, like the Obamas, like Jesse Jackson, like Al Sharpton who are standing on stage and trying to interpret all of this event and what it means for America. I think in rejecting the politics of respectability, it broadens the circle of solidarity and it allows, instead of what we've got now, which is middle class solidarity across racial lines in which we condemn the poor and the working class for not protesting properly, to racial solidarity across class lines in which African Americans who are still targeted by a prison industrial complex, who are still targeted by driving while black. The problems facing America in the 21st century are clearly racial. And to be able to address those and have that riots are the language of the unheard, 
and rejecting the politics of respectability is the first step in allowing that to happen. Okay, that's just a fantastic way, I think, to end our first Southern Labor Studies Association podcast. Thank you, Professor Jay Driscoll, for sharing your thoughts and your insights, and we'll be looking forward to your next project. Great. Thank you so much. This is a pleasure. Thank you again to Jay Driscoll, author of the new book, Schooling Jim Crow, The Fight for Atlanta's Booker T. Washington High School and the Roots of Black Protest Politics. And thank you for listening to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Visit us online and become a member at www.southernlaborstudies.org.